This is Periodically Political, brought to you by ElectSTEM. We bring you stories of where science intersects politics. My name is Chris Caputo, and I'll be your co-host today, along with Monica Stoller. We'd like to welcome our guest, Brian Chang, who was the federal NDP candidate for Scarborough Agent Court in the 2017 uh, election and Toronto Centre in the 2019 election and the 2020 by-election. Brian has an honors bachelor's of arts in environmental policy and practice from the University of Toronto and a master's degree in environmental studies from York University. Currently, Brian is a research associate at SEIU Healthcare, helping to fight for enhancements to frontline healthcare workers across Ontario. Welcome to the show, Brian. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Welcome, Brian. One of the goals at Alexstem is to demystify how to run for political office for scientists and engineers. And the approach that we take is interviewing people like yourself who have actually made that leap. Our first question is, what motivated you to decide to get involved in politics? So that's a big question. I think for me, politics has always been something that uh, has been core to the work that I'm trying to do. I could see problems in the world and I'm like, how do I fix this? And I remember for I remember being in grade five and we had to do uh, this project where we had to write letters about issues that we saw in the world. And we had to, had to scan the newspaper and find something out there in the world that was making us really concerned. And we had to write a letter about why that was important to our teacher. And I wrote a letter about how children were going hungry and not being able to afford food um, and not having access to food and, and were, were dying of, of malnutrition and famine. And then I wrote another letter uh, about that in a different country. Uh, and then I wrote another letter. And then I was the only one, we only had to write one letter, but I kept writing these letters to my teacher. And I remember Mrs. Pinto appreciated them and she would write a letter back every single time that I did. And that was really when I think I, I, that I treat as the very formulation of my kind of political ideas of, of when I saw something that was wrong in the world. And I was like, you know what, this isn't okay. And we can do much better. And that was what that I, I really tried my best over time to, to turn that into, um, into, into, into so much of the work that I'm doing now, whether it's involved in political action and community organizing uh, through my labor uh, work uh, at SEIU Healthcare and other unions that I've worked for, and then just making sure that I'm living true to the values of social justice, equity, cosmopolitanism, and uh, collectivism. And those are really core to who I am as a person and who I am as, a, as, as somebody involved in politics. That's great hearing, you know, it started back in grade school and like a teacher helped inspire all of this in you and just goes to show the importance of, you know, our education system and, and everything. Uh, you've run for office multiple times now and have had a significant amount of experience with campaigning. Uh, so I was wondering if you could walk us through, you know, what it was like running for office the first time and, you know, in subsequent times, how did that change? So the first time I ran for office, um, I was uh, living in Scarborough, uh, agent court at the time, and that was a riding. Um, so this was in the end of 2017. It was actually the tail end of the NDP leadership of that year. So I was director of operations for Jagmeet Singh's national leadership campaign um, across the country. So I hey, we had just finished that, and then the by-election was called because the previous MP had passed away. And, and we were running, we were, 
thinking about like, well, what do we do? How do we find, uh, how do we build capacity? How do we try things out? Um, how do we run a new campaign? We have a brand new leader. What do we do? Um, and I was like, you know what? I want to step forward and try it out. And that was the first time I chose to get involved in politics as a candidate, but not the first time that I would involve in politics. I've worked in many different campaigns. Um, going back to 2010, um, I was part of uh, Olivia Chow's mayoral campaign. I was director of policy um, for uh, for her mayoral campaign in 2014 as well, too. Um, so, and then uh, in Toronto Centre, where I live now, um, in 2019, we actually started that work quite early on. Um, and it was about identifying, well, what are the gaps that we're seeing out there? And for me, one of those major things was the climate emergency and the climate crisis. Um, mm -hmm. And seeing how I was tired of, of hearing lip service for this. We had gone through four years of them of, of the Liberals talking about it, but not really doing a whole lot of a lot of action on it. And then seeing um, and really wanting to commit to making change and realizing that that needed to happen at a national stage, not just local anymore. That there needed to be uh, there needed to be much more involved in that. And there were tons of great uh, climate activists who stepped up to run um, for for the NDP, especially in downtown Toronto. People like Diana Yoon in in Spenner, Fort York, who is an activist with Climate Justice Toronto. Min Suk Lee, who's a professor at OCAD University, is also a fantastic climate activist and, and migrant worker uh, advocate and. I was proud to join with these people and, and, and really fight for things that were really important. And, and for me, as somebody who's, who's worked in the environmental movement for, for, for many, many, many years now, it, it's, uh, it's, it's so important to take action on these things. It, it's not, it, it stresses me out um, and causes me a lot of mental anguish sometimes to think about the, 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 the lack of time that we have. Um, and, and it's easy to get paralyzed by that. And I've seen so many of my colleagues get paralyzed by that, but it's really about taking action. And for me, um, stepping forward to be uh, somebody who would make those decisions or, or hold power to account was really important. It's really the most important cause right now. I want to dig a little deeper into this. How did the nomination process actually work? Were you recruited to run in any of these campaigns or did you have to compete in a nomination in advance? That's a really great question. And it's something that's unique and different to every single party. So I think for a lot of people who are out there thinking about running, they're just like, what do I do? Get involved in your riding association, your local riding association, and kind of get a feel for what it looks like. Not all riding associations are active. Not all riding associations have... Um, do an active search out there. The NDP has a really robust system of finding candidates. So the way it usually works is that there's a local, uh, the local riding association establishes a search committee. And then that search committee goes out there and attempts to, uh, to find candidates. Now, what's really different about the NDP is that there is a strong commitment to finding equity-seeking candidates. So riding associations in the NDP must go out there and prove that they have attempted to find candidates that are racialized, um, indigenous, uh, uh, live with a disability, um, uh, are, are queer or, or, um, or non-gender conforming. Um, in any kind of number of equity-seeking groups that are out there, um, they have to show evidence that they've attempted to reach those people and had conversations with them. And what that means is that we end up with some amazingly diverse uh, sets of candidates that have, have been brought forward. And, and the NDP in the 2019 election is, is by far the most diverse and, and really exciting representative 
set of candidates that have ever been put forward by a major political party in, in Canadian history. And, and that, a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have a fantastic leader in Jagmeet Singh, who has set the bar for what we should be looking for and what politics can look like here in this country. Now, for, for nominations as well, too, uh, the NDP also doesn't have, you don't need to pay money to become part of a nomination. That's not necessarily true in some of the other parties. Um, and we have heard, um, and there are examples of, uh, of certain ridings requiring a certain amount of donations or commitment to donations in order to participate in those uh, nomination meet meetings. And, um, and that's not... That's not easy for a lot of people to get uh, to, 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 to get involved in for the first time. If you've never been involved in, in politics, um, you can't hit the ground running as fast as somebody who has built up those connections over time. And that doesn't mean that that person who has those connections will necessarily be the best candidate. And it also just means that the membership should have an option. And this is something that's complicated for people in that we don't have primaries like the US does here. So the, the nominations that happen when in each party um, are really subject to whoever the membership is for that party. So if in Toronto Centre there are 200 members, for example, those 200 members, if they choose to vote, get to determine who their candidate will be. And that is something um, that's uh, that's important because uh, in the by-election in 2020, it was called really quickly. Nobody was expecting it as fast as they did. Um, the we were the only party the ndp was the only party um that held a contested nomination and then there were actually uh four candidates in total so three other people stepped forward they wanted to run and they put their names forward and uh and we all we all had a had a had a we had, it was a little wacky because we had to try and figure out how to do this during a pandemic and not being able to meet in one room uh and nobody else had done this this was the very first by-elections ever in in, in the in, during the pandemic um and we all put our names forward and i was the one that ultimately the membership selected but that wasn't true of the other parties so um they they all had appointed candidates that were uh, that were all selected not uh, they didn't go through a, a democratic nomination process like the ndp did that's fascinating and yet during a pandemic that that you were able to pull that off is incredible could you provide a bit of insight into fundraising for a the kind of the general election campaign you did note about how you know some parties require even certain funding in advance, and it's it's kind of you know a, a lot of scientists and engineers may not even be thinking about the networks in order to fundraise. Like, how did you find that during your campaigns? When it comes to finances, there are so many different pieces that need to be considered. There's your own personal financial situation. So, like for myself, for example. I started a new job. I started as a research associate at SEIU Healthcare in March, um, and actually March of 2020. And actually, uh, I started uh, March 16th, and then the day after, I packed up my office and we were working from home. Um, so that was kind of what was going on. And I had a nine-month probation, which meant that the election happened within my probation period. So it was it was scary because I didn't know what was going to happen. Would they grant my leave of absence? Would they not? Um, a lot of people have to grapple with those kinds of issues. Can they deal with being out of the labor force or whatever, uh, or or away from their income source for uh, a two-month period or for, for a campaign? Or campaigns are usually a minimum of 36 days. Um, so can you be out of, of income for that long? Uh, can you even get the leave that's required? Can you get vacation? So that those personal um, side of things. And then also, whether to leave your job or not, a lot of candidates 
take that ultimate leap or they leave their jobs in order uh, to run for office. And then you have to think about, can I get it? How fast can I find work afterwards? Or do I have something that's potentially lined up in case it doesn't work out? And then when it comes to actual campaign finances as well, too, it is largely up to the campaigns to fund their own campaigns. And that's just kind of the reality of the way that, that politics works, um, especially in this country. It's very expensive to run campaigns. It's hard to run campaigns. You don't always need a lot of money to be effective. Um, and, and sometimes if you have lots of money, it still doesn't mean that you'll win. But there's there there has to be you have to be good at putting yourself into that really uncomfortable space of asking people for money. And what's what's really exciting about that sometimes is that you don't know where it's going to come from, and then it, it shows up, and then you're just like, wow. And then you don't realize people that would come out of the woodwork to support you, um, and especially somebody like myself as as a queer uh, racialized candidate who lives with a facial difference. Like I was surprised at the support that I got from across the country, um, as well as locally here. And every time that I run, there's new sets of people that have uh, that have stepped up and have been willing to support me and see themselves reflected in what I have to offer. And that's really super inspirational and, re and really exciting. So there's that personal side of it that candidates and potential uh, nomination candidates need to think about. And then they also need to think about um, Sometimes jobs require you, if as soon as you're nominated, they want you to leave your job or they don't want you to engage in political work or they find that you're doing political work and then it puts you in a, in a weird space as well too. Or there's some where you just do it on your own personal time until you until the day that you negotiate that you leave. But you have to figure that out as a candidate. And then uh, and then being in the campaign itself, you have um, you'll have many hats. And one of those is you're the primary fundraiser for your campaign. Like you are the face that people are donating to, and it has to be compelling. It has to be interesting. Otherwise, they won't come. And you have to get over being afraid to ask people. To participate because you're not just asking people for their money you're asking people to become part of the movement that you're trying to build you're asking people to vote and put their energy in you because you are offering them something in return and that's a chance to see themselves reflected in politics people don't just donate random money to people that they don't identify with uh, they donate money and can to candidates they feel engaged with and empowered by and that's really important so brian could you tell us something that you would like other candidates on the campaign trail to know about uh, perhaps unexpected things on the campaign? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I think that is not covered a lot is that being a candidate can be an unsafe um, experience. It can be a little bit dangerous as well, too. Um, during the by-election, for example, there were two incidences in which... Um, we were stalked and followed. So there was one, um, there are people who will harass our campaigns and we're not just talking about online harassment. Sometimes it does become physical and there are there are threats that are <clears throat> the candidates will face and female candidates definitely 100% will get this um, a, a lot more than, than other candidates. And there's actually uh, research that's been that's being done and conducted by uh, different colleagues across the, across the country talking about these kinds of things and analyzing uh, different types of um, hate online and, and trying to define that or what harassment or bullying could look like. Um, but on the ground, what that looks like is that somebody who's really uh, upset with you for even a personal or, or political standpoint that you're taking, um, they can follow you. 
They can yell at anybody you can interact with. They can follow you into stores. And, and during the pandemic, this was really hard when the one person was stalking us. We couldn't go anywhere. Everything, everywhere was closed, which meant that we couldn't go inside to really get away from this person. Um, and really what ended up happening was that I ran off with one volunteer to run and hop on a bike share and get away as fast as I could from this person. Meanwhile, the volunteers all went off in a different direction. Um, and it was kind of the only thing it's it's debilitating like the volunteers were so disheartened by this process i had no idea what to do um with that my idea was to try and keep everybody as safe as possible but here we had this person who wasn't wearing a mask yelling at people um yelling horrible things at people we were talking to and it was just it was distracting and it meant that for an a whole afternoon we were basically dealing with this and and we lost that time for engaging with voters um and then on election day itself, there was another person who followed Suze Morrison, the MPP for this area, the NDP MP for the area we were together in. He followed us for like four blocks um, and we had to run into a local business that we knew was friendly and had protocols around this uh, named Glad Day uh, Bookshop in the village, in the, in the queer village here in, in Toronto Centre, um, who who knew how to deal with situations like this. And we hid in the back until this person went away. And that's the kind of stuff that planning and thinking about it is really important because you never know when this stuff will happen but when it happens it's horrible it really is um and then of course particularly with those people who are just tweeting at you incessantly all the time and and just will not stop and it's just it, it it's hard because you have to engage in social media because so much especially during a pandemic is is involved in that but when they're constantly tweeting at you it can be very exhausting and it's really hard when those people are employed or working for some of your opponents and they are targeting you uh, in a place that feels really really quite vicious because they have a much more personal stake than somebody who's just randomly on the street or or a voter in the area when it's somebody who's affiliated and works for um somebody else like one of your opponents it feels very very personal and it's it's wrong like it's just it just it just feels very very invasive and it's and i, I want people to know that that's this is the reality of what it's like to put yourself out there and it isn't to say that there isn't a way to navigate those systems because i think i've been uh because there is and everybody has to deal with this it's not just exclusive to to certain people but know that if you are uh racialized or 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 queer or or identify as a woman and and or identify as somebody who works for labor or for your political positions or or your background or ethnicity there are so many reasons and ways that people can attack you but but keeping your eye on the ball and knowing that the reasons why you are here are legit and and will help keep you focused through through that process so that's something that i want people to be aware of wow thank you so much for sharing that I want to shift gears back to something you mentioned earlier was running a campaign in the middle of a pandemic, which is an incredible feat. Something that we like to know is how did you get your message across to the community without actually going door to door? How did you incorporate social media? If you did, did you have a dedicated staff for the social media? And do you see this as the future for running? So... I think a challenging thing that will be part of uh, a lot of scientists and engineers maybe being part of a candidate is that you have to learn how to give control up. You have to really learn to allow other people to participate in the campaign and to not have direct control over everything. And that can be really difficult. Um, 
and it can be it can be it can be strange so sometimes uh sometimes the social media was done by my campaign sometimes it was done by me um i had some really great people that are involved in our uh, electoral district association who would do some of that work or, or people that i really trusted um there's stuff you can do like prep stuff in advance uh so I also work as a freelance journalist. So it was important for me to kind of come up with ideas of like, what uh, what does my voice sound like? And it also helps that I have a whole bunch of writing out there and social media presence. So people can people who are savvy in communication can look at what I've already created and kind of fit into what you're already doing. If you're creating a brand or an idea from scratch, that's always really challenging. So a lot of candidates uh, will create a Twitter account or a Facebook account just for the campaign. And it's starting from scratch. And that's, that's really hard to do. Um, but I've made it important that the political work is part of my personal work. Like those things aren't separate for me. They're who I am as a person and I don't want them to be, to, to be separate. Uh, campaigning during a pandemic was wacky. Uh, there are, I don't think there's enough adjectives to describe just how strange the situation was. It was also, it was stressful to go out there not knowing what was going on, knowing that you're potentially putting yourself at risk, making uh, potentially um, making your volunteers at risk. So one thing that was really important, and we actually did it before I even won the nomination, was while I was going through the nomination process, I was like, you know what, we have to develop a COVID-19 safety policy. And it was something that we uh, developed on my website and still available. And I've shared it with as many writing associations as I can in the NDP so that they put my mind to thinking through this. It's like, what can you do in your particular area that, it, that minimizes the risk? to an acceptable level, uh, that people feel able to participate, that you feel comfortable uh, running a campaign in that area, and, and that meets the public health standards and guidelines in that particular region. Um, and as we've seen in, uh, so at the time when we were running, um, there was no there was no lockdown. So a lot of people were still working from home, but stuff, uh, the numbers and infection rates weren't, um, weren't as high as they are now. Uh, now in January, as they were back in September, October, things were actually, school was just going back. We were, um, it was, it felt very different, even though it was just a couple of months ago, it felt very different than right now where we're all just um, stuck in inside. And, and then you have to think through what is my, what is the chief medical officer in my particular public health region speaking to? What is safe? What is not? What is the makeup of, of our particular building? So one thing that was really important is we didn't do door-to-door -door, uh, canvassing in Toronto Centre. Toronto Centre is in the heart of downtown. It's geographically the smallest riding in the country, but it is home to 100,000 people. Uh, they're all vertical. Um, and what that meant is that we it was unsafe and it would be improper to have volunteers and myself going door to door within hallways where you cannot distance two meters away from people. Um, there's low air circulation. A lot of these older buildings in the area don't have any, any air circulation or HVAC systems. They're heated by baseboard, for example, um, and there's no air, there's no air circulation or flow. So these are all things we had to think about. I also didn't have a campaign office. We could have afforded it 100%. And it wasn't an issue of a lack of resources. It was just we couldn't justify having a whole bunch of people together in close proximity in a small space over an extended period of time. Um, and then to bring volunteers into that space and not know what's happening. And again, like so many other storefronts, 
in, 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 in downtown Toronto, they're older buildings that again are baseboard heating that don't have central air um, or, or windows, right? In often cases, um, there, there's a lack of airflow in these. Uh, and then if you were to say, get an office space in an office building and you're on the third or fourth floor, then you have to worry about how do people use elevators? Do people use, need to use stairwells um, to access these spaces? So these are all sorts of things that people never normally have to think about. I don't think I ever thought about HVAC when I, ever before when I was thinking of a campaign space, um, ever before. But it required us to really change our mind and to put some thought into that. And, and, and it's really, and that is so important because what we are doing is dangerous in the time of pandemic. The risk to volunteers is high. The risk to the candidates is high, and the risk to the people that we interact with is also high as well too. Um, but thankfully, uh, we had no infections um, uh, over the course of, of of the campaign that we ran. Um, and I think it's uh, what we did, and I did my best to kind of uh, catalog our activities so that that could be a model for people um, moving forward. Because it's this is. Democracy is really important, and it just requires us to be creative and do things a little differently. Um, but that doesn't mean that it can't be done. Sounds like it was a total science experiment <laughs> out there. Something new and something to learn out of it. Yeah. and But it's also like part of that process was also what worked and what didn't. So we ended up doing a lot of stuff on the street corners. Like we did attempt to do some... Um, some canvassing, for example, uh, on some of the houses. There are there are areas with some houses in 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 the riding, um, and it was just like a matter of like knocking on the door really quickly with a glove, and then and then like going to the bottom of the stairs or or like as far away back as you can while yelling. At that was also really weird because you had to yell at everybody. You were basically just always yelling because it was the only way to communicate with people at a distance, um, and it just it. I don't think people liked it when. <laughs> People weren't expecting people to come to their doors and we're just kind of a little taken back by it. So we actually, we, after, after one, one attempt of doing that, we were like, this is not, um, this is not, it's not the path for us. And then of course, social media um, was a big part of what we had to do. So it was, it was trying to stitch together a story so that you could follow what we were doing across the riding. That it wasn't just about like, here's this person, he's standing here, here's this person, why are we standing there, right? Like, why are we in this particular area? What are the issues we're talking about in this area? Not just a pretty picture of me in front of a whole bunch of people, right? So it's about, it's about making sure that we're storytelling throughout this process. And that's, that's, that's also my approach to social media as well, too. It's not just, uh, it's not just scrolling through somebody's Insta really, really quickly, just looking at pretty pictures. It's about, it's about, it's something much more deeper than them. Something really interesting that actually came out now that you bring up storytelling is you came out with a thorough document on your run in the Toronto City Centre by-election um, where your theme was make good trouble. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And specifically, in your opinion, how could STEM-educated folks make good trouble to bring science to the forefront of decision-making? So Make Good Trouble is uh, a quote from John Lewis, who is a civil rights activist and, and representative in the U.S. And um, he's been fantastic. And I just love the idea of what we're trying to do is not 
in the work that we're doing, we have to be agitating towards pushing people for change. Like if, if things just stay the way they are, we won't get anywhere. And that's not the kind of politics I want, because if there are problems that are out there, we need to start implementing um, implementing policies, processes, structural change that can get us moving on a different path. And in my policy studies, there was a really important uh, theory that I that I focused on in, in, in the research that I was doing around subnational climate change policy. And that was around the idea of path dependency. And it's really about if you shift a system um, with policies or ideas or, or people or structures towards a new direction, it will continue to follow that direction. And it, it, for things like policy is if we create the shape in which people have to be responsive in this public consultation, there will continue to be public consultation. It won't just be public consultation once. And then if we get on that process, we might end up with better policies on an ongoing basis. So that was really my, uh, that was my approach to thinking through, um, through not only just policies in general, but also like, what do we do in terms of the, the work that we're trying to create in our community um, or the changes that we're trying to create in our community? And that's really about recognizing what's wrong and not doing the same thing um, and trying something new and trying something different. And sure, if we get it wrong, then we can recorrect or try something else. Um, but there are so many things that we know that aren't working in our community where evidence tells us very clearly that it is not working. Um, and things like, for example, the opioid crisis. What we know is the science tells us that a safe supply is what we need to have access to and that this is not an issue that you can incarcerate uh, people out of and communities out of. We can't put people in it. We can't just uh, imprison our way out of these issues. Um, and that's something that's, that's supported by evidence-based science, but it's not something that that elected representatives are yet doing or actioning, or at least in a critical mass. So that's something where, um, and that's really important for us to think about where can we agitate in the spaces to create that, those changes? And I will say, like, if we had had conversations four or five years ago about safe supply, we'd have been laughed out of rooms, right? We'd have been like, people in public wouldn't have known what it was. A year ago, if we were talking about defunding the police, nobody would know what the hell I was talking about, right? Like nobody would know what we were talking about or we were talking about that or detasking the police or any kind of language around uh, taking money away from police forces and allocating it to, 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 to services that people uh, need that are not related to uh, coercive force. And so for me, the good fight, the good trouble is about making sure that we find those spaces to exploit and that we're out there to make sure that we're, we're creating those spaces. That if it's a small crack in a window, that we're making that, 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 that crack big. Uh, and then if it's a door, if we get to the point where we make it a door, that we open that door and then we rip the door off its hinges so everybody else can follow behind us. And that's really, it's not about just one incremental thing about me just being elected so that I can be the person that says, yes, I know everything about climate change and climate emergency and I'll do all of this. I'll do policy X, Y, Z. It's about making sure that all of the people who feel that they're not represented have a voice that I can then amplify. Um, and I think that that's really, really, uh, what John Lewis is talking about is making sure that we're agitating towards making that change and then recognizing that it requires us to be uncomfortable, that it's not always a safe space. Um, as somebody who's queer and racialized, like it's not, it's not always a political, uh, a, a, the, poli the political sphere is not always a safe space for me and for colleagues that I have that are, that are women um, uh, who are racialized. It is not, politics is not by, by any means a safe space for people to participate in on a regular basis. Um, and it can be really, really challenging. I'm glad you really brought up science in your last point and some evidence-based decision-making 
We know that the representation of STEM elected officials isn't consistent with the STEM representation of the Canadian population. And one hurdle is the length of time that it takes to do a master's degree or a PhD. And what would you say to a listener who wants to get involved but doesn't quite know where to start? For example, you've done a master's degree. Maybe your story can help our listeners get started. Mm -hmm. So... Just as being a candidate requires you to think about finances, being a student requires you to also think about finances. Um, and one of the only reasons I could, the only reason I graduated without debt from my undergrad was because my father passed away. And he had a life insurance policy that meant that all of our student debt and me and my sisters was wiped away effectively by his life insurance policy. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to participate in a master's degree. And that's important to recognize there are so many people who don't have access to education uh, and can't participate in those systems. And then there's people within the education system who might not be able to then complete their studies. And for those of us that are and, and for, that are able to, to get um, higher education and participate in those systems, um, it's, a, it's important to think about your education as labor that is valuable. And I think about this as a labor professional who has worked at uh, the Public Service Alliance of Canada. For example, I work with postdocs, I organize TAs and, and GAs and RAs and whatnot. And it is so important for, 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 for scientists and, and researchers and people in science, technology, engineering, math, arts, anything you can think of, is that if you're in post-secondary education, you are creating something of value that the university knows is value and is selling actively to other people. Um, and you have to recognize that your value ha your, your labor has value. Um, so it's, it's not just about thinking about your work as something that's contributing to you being able to complete your research so that you can then um, and then achieve all of all, all of the requirements for your degree. It's about recognizing that you should be valued for that work on an ongoing basis. And then if you also think of politics in the same light is that you might not just because you're not compensated for something doesn't mean that it's not work because so often a lot of the labor that we do, a lot of the things that we do that are really important to us, we're not compensated for. And I say that as somebody who performs regularly um, with choirs and project-based choirs across the GTA, they're, we're not often paid. Musicians are, and if when I am, it's very little. Um, so that's not the reason why I do uh, things like music. So when people are trying to think through whether they have an ability to participate in the political system, it's about thinking about where do you want to put that work. And if at that moment you want to do it, you put it into your education and focus on that, that's fine. That's absolutely, accept uh, that's absolutely acceptable. But if you want to take that time and put it into, say, a campaign for a three-month period, four-month period, one-year program, 10-year period, that's absolutely um, something that you can work towards as well, too. I think about uh, a book that my, um, my supervisor gave me in um, uh, during my master's, and it was how to write a lot. <laughs> and it was really about setting out it is about recognizing that work uh, the work that we're doing is labor and setting out time to actually do that work so we're all very good about doing that i think um most people who are who, who are involved in in graduate studies are very good at segmenting out time to be able to do things when you're doing your writing when you're doing research when you're doing your reading when you're um, when you're checking on things when you're um so you can also take that same approach to to politics as well too. Um, I think a lot of you are already probably doing this. If, you, if if people are listening to this podcast, it means they put aside the time to make sure that they can listen to this so that they can engage on this kind of subject. And it means that people are accessing um, different types of information that can help support where they want to go. So it's 
and it's not and I, I want people who are involved in stem and science to realize that they're part of a system they're there, there's nowhere I go that I don't encounter encounter people that are working in science. And even though I'm working as a labor professional right now, I'm working for SEIU Healthcare, which means that I'm working, I'm working with frontline healthcare workers, trying to make sure that they have labor protections. Which means that if I'm dealing with RPNs at a long-term care facility who are infected with COVID-19, then I need to know what the public health information is out there. I need to know what other scientific data there is to help support that member who is dealing with this disease. And that is, now I'm not doing the science directly, but I'm doing the research on people who are doing science. And, they, and, and, and there are so many examples in policy that you can think of. There's so much in environmental policy that relies on good evidence-based science. Um, and one thing I'll say on this while I'm on science as well, too, is that the precautionary principle is a really important part of uh, the cl uh, of how we deal with the climate crisis, how we deal with with science, period, not just not just in the environment, but also in public health. And that is a scientific principle. And that needs to be something that isn't just something that willy nilly that's out there in the world. We have to make people realize the precautionary principle is absolutely 100 percent scientific. It, it was developed by scientists. To, to help make decisions and, and to force change, even in, in the complete absence of 100% certainty. And, and knowing that, it's important to recognize as well too, that science is ideologically loaded. It is not, uh, it is not devoid of interference and, and ideology and political um, scheming and other ideas and it, it can cross different borders. Um, I'll give you two examples of people that I fundamentally do not disagree with who are very uh, well-respected scientists. Kelly Leach, who was one of the former, um, who was a professor at Western, uh, Western Medical School, who, was, who, who also was a leadership uh, contestant for the, conservative, uh, for the Conservative Party of Canada, who famously talked about how many letters she had after her name, but was also on record saying horribly xenophobic things and and not wanting people who look like me who are racialized to be in this country or have to go through so many extra hoops to be able to come here. And that's just wrong. Another example is Ben Carson, who's the famed uh, neuroscientist in the US who became uh, Donald Trump's um, uh, secretary of uh, housing, who again was somebody who people once thought was pretty awesome, who, really bad politics and has devastated so many people who rely on housing, who rely on federal programs in the US for housing, for example. So it isn't necessarily about just making sure that scientists are represented. And what my challenge is to people who are listening to this and, and, and people who are interested in getting engaged is tell me how your research or tell me how you are going to use science to better other people's lives in a positive manner, in a progressive manner in, that requires us to enter, to, to, interconnect with different identities, uh, helping different people who are marginalized or equity seeking, and then making sure that we're not leaving the systems the same um, and really making sure that we, we, we are pushing them forward. And, and, and that's what I think scientists are good at dreaming about better futures. Um, and I think they need to just be a little bit more brave about saying, you know what, this isn't okay the way things are. So what can we do to start doing it better? And maybe that's writing a paper so that it can get uh, doing research. Maybe it's reaching out to some other uh, some other fellow um, researchers. Um, 
And a great example of that that's happening right here in Ontario is Doctors for Long-Term Care Justice. Um, and it's it's researchers and doctors and hundreds of them across the country and across Ontario who have come together to say, you know what, this system's not working. And the evidence is there. We've made it clear that these public health uh, interventions being made by the, the Ford government are not enough and that people are continuing to die. This system, the for-profit system as it is, is not working. And we need to we need to change this fundamentally. But sometimes, even when the science is overwhelming, political leaders will not take action. And that's where um, that's where the scientist then needs to become the advocate and uh, and and really push and and hold people to account because um, the best report in the world you could write the best most comprehensive detailed uh, evidence based um, scientific peer reviewed uh, document in the world but if it gets to the wrong person and that person doesn't take action I'm not sure what happens at that point right it needs we need the people that will that will take the action and 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 will drive the change. It's an inspiring answer that you just gave, and it's a lot to digest, and it's a lot that I think we need to reflect on. Um, you know, one of the reasons I, that we we started Elect STEM and and this periodically political podcast is kind of how you were describing when these reports, expert reports, make it to the political decision making table. We need expert scientists at that table who are conscious of the impacts and, you know, help implement this, you know, science or evidence-based policy that will benefit society. Uh, so thank you very much for that answer. And thank you for all the insights that you've provided so far. And, you know, I want to, you know, take this opportunity to turn the microphone over to you and allow you to tell us something that you're excited about today that you're working on that you would like to highlight for our audience. So one thing that's really important to me as we're thinking about uh, a potential election happening in uh, the spring and fall is I want people to think about who is represented by your party right now. Like if you think that you're affiliated with a political party, I think it's necessary for you to take a look at what the makeup of the people that are elected looks like. What are the types of candidates that are put forward? As somebody who's racialized, there it's not always a challenge to find racialized candidates. It's hard Racialized candidates just don't always end up in places where they can possibly win, right? And sometimes that's strategic, and and sometimes it can be very challenging for somebody who isn't a white cisgendered man to step up and say, "I'm going to run in this place." Um, it's really challenging. And for me in Scarborough Asian Court, that was for me to run there. It wasn't about winning, and it was never going to happen. It was about being a queer candidate in an area that's quite conservative. Um, and it was about being openly gay and, and, and proud about that. It was about talking about uh, what a facial difference is um, and, and my identity as somebody who lives with a disability. It was about talking about politics in a different way. And I think that that's important for scientists as well too. And, uh, or anybody who's engaged in, in, in research, it's, it's about being able to talk about the world that you want to build. And, uh, and you can do that with data. You can do it with algorithms and, 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 and number sets. You can do it with programming and code. You can do it with music. You can do it with literature and poetry. Um, you can do it with policy. Uh, and you can do it on the street with 10 of your friends holding up a bunch of signs uh, that say BLM and, and defund the police. There are so many ways in which people can participate in our system. I just want people to recognize that the elected officials 
will have and come across decisions and have access to power in a way that people on the street just will never have. Um, and sometimes that means we have to displace people who are there who are not causing who who are who are who are not acting in 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 ways that we think are interesting and important um but also recognizing that somebody doesn't need to be to have a graduate degree in order to participate in in scientific debate or having 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 discussions about what's uh what's really important in a, in a meaningful way and i think we have to be able to um have those discussions as well too with, with people and i find that that's where i really enjoy the kind of idea of journalism it's about taking something that's complex and breaking it down into something that's a little bit more easy to understand um without losing the intention of what was uh, originally written but but really journalism requires you to take information and translate it or 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 make it make it different in a way that people will engage with um maybe a little bit more than a scientific journal that's behind a paywall um and that's really that's important because we need allies who are journalists we need allies who are who are who are scientists um and we need uh we need people just out there on the street who might not know but want to know a little bit more and will come to a, a webinar or a talk or 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 will will watch an instagram live story that i'll do with 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 somebody who's an economist or or a public health official for example right and i think that that's an important way that we can make sure that science isn't isn't separate from everyday life that it's really part of everyday life and um and that we we continue to meet people where they're at um, and engage them in in those kinds of discussions thanks brian i definitely want to see where our listeners take your words and i really hope they take them to heart and take some action on what you've said um i would also like to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today it was really a pleasure to have you and we appreciate everything you've said definitely a ton of food for thought for our listeners thanks so much it's been such a great pleasure to be here and please feel free to check out my website at brianchang.ca and it's brian with an i um, and feel free to reach out and contact me and happy to chat awesome also if you've liked this if you've liked this episode we encourage you to rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcast it really helps draw new listeners to discover the show